uh, at the midway point through chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12 tonight. And we are going to pick up in verse 22. I'm going to begin reading in verses, beginning in verse 22. I'm going to read through verse 30, and we'll pray, and we will get into the message this evening. Uh, Matthew 12, verse 22, says this. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitude were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they, excuse me, now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by, who, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first bind the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word this evening. We ask that you would give us illumination and insight. Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher and show us the truth and glorify Jesus tonight, Lord. Give us understanding of your word. We pray that our hearts would be on uh, full display before you and before us, Lord. Show us our own conditions so that we could properly bring ourselves before you and experience your power and your grace and your ability to deliver us, Lord, in, in every season and every challenge and every difficulty. Lord, we thank you for your authority. And we ask that you would so put that before us clearly tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Guys, can I get a little more light up here? As we come to uh, this portion of scripture, what is really put before us is the authority of Jesus. And I want you to write that down. Uh, the theme of what we're going to be discussing this evening and what Jesus is putting before us is the the mission of Jesus so clearly put before us that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil we need to clarify something in our own in our own thought it is it has been said I think A.W. Tozer says this in a lot of his writings that the most important thing about you and I is what we think about God uh, we need to correct the thinking that Jesus and Satan are equals they are not equal uh, Satan is a created being, Jesus, Jesus is a creator of all things. In fact, Colossians, I want you to see this with me, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians 1. I'm going to take you to two portions of Colossians because it is important that we have a correct understanding of the deity of Jesus. Colossians 1, verse 15 and 16 says this, it says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, 
For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Those are uh, demonic, uh, force, demonic beings, principalities or powers. All things were created through him. And notice this, through him and for him. Look at Colossians 2.15, says this, Having disarmed the principalities and powers, notice, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Jesus and Satan are not equals. And what this text so wonderfully does before us, what the Lord is deliberately doing, is putting his, his authority over Satan and his ability to destroy the works of the devil on display before us. So I want you to think about whatever you're going. If you're a, if you're a blood-bought child of God here tonight, uh, you already have victory in Christ. My great concern today, I think the greatest burden I have in my own heart as it pertains to the people of God is just this um, unvictorious Christian living that we see today. Uh, that we don't see the church triumphing in Christ. That a, a lot of our Christian experience is one of defeat and one of woe. And that's not biblical Christianity, at least that's not what the New Testament puts before us. Um, are we going to have suffering and difficulty? Are we subject to the world and its, and its, and its challenges? And are we subject to, the, to Satan and his, and his devices? Absolutely we are. But the Bible says that we are always led in victory. So, but what is your view of Jesus? You call him Lord, you call him Savior. What is your view of your King and your Lord? Who is he really to you? What Jesus does is puts himself on display in his power, his dominion over Satan, over demons, over the kingdom of darkness. We need to understand that. There are two opposing forces and there's only two in this world. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And they are not equal. But you can't be neutral in them. What we see tonight is this man brought before the Lord... And he's in dire straits. He's demon-possessed. And because he's demon-possessed, he cannot speak and he cannot see. And what this man's condition does is so accurately represents our own spiritual condition prior to the intervention of Christ in our lives. We are controlled by the flesh. We are controlled by the enemy. And we are spiritually um, enabled to see. And our words have no power. We cannot see correctly. We cannot speak correctly. We are deaf and we are dumb. We are blind apart from Christ. So this man's malady actually describes our own spiritual condition before Christ. Where I see the problem is that a lot of the believers today willingly subject themselves to the authority of Satan. So quickly give in to his temptation and so quickly give in to his his place. The Bible tells us not to be ignorant of his devices. We so willingly give in to every temptation of the flesh, every solicitation of the enemy. We so willingly give in. And sometimes we lack to acknowledge that we are actually in a spiritual battle. Your mental trips that you may be going through here tonight, your lack of desire for God himself is in fact you finding yourself in the collision between uh, the enemy and God's work in your life. And the moment we become victorious is when we begin to acknowledge this. 
to not uh, navigate your Christian experience as if you are actually walking through enemy-occupied territory is it really an exercise in futility. You cannot get saved and give your life to Christ and then live as if you are not living in enemy-occupied territory. In fact, Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 he talks about this spiritual battle. The Bible says uh, that, the, that though we walk in 2 Corinthians, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Even in this room right now, the enemy is at work to distract your mind, to discourage your heart from receiving the implanted word of God that is able to save your souls. If you read the parable of the sower and the seed, the Bible says when the, the seed is sown that the enemy is at work to snatch the seed away before it bears fruit. So maybe when you come in here, maybe when you sit alone with his word or anytime you're, you're sitting under the authority of God's word, maybe you should put that mindset on. That there's actively spiritual warfare taking place in your life to inhibit you from walking in truth and walking in power. To ignore the presence of the enemy is foolishness. But to give the enemy more authority than he deserves is also foolishness. Because again, Jesus and Satan are not equals. Jesus has absolute authority. And when you, I, my prayer for us this evening as we go through this text, uh, this text struck me in a new way uh, in my time alone with it in just preparation. Um... In fact, I'll say this, I think in my own preparation there was some spiritual warfare because I believe that the Lord wants us as we go through this text to unleash the truth of just how um, insufficient Satan is to hold any ground in the presence of Jesus. In my own pre pre preparation of this, I, it's just, I couldn't put anything together, so I know that the Lord has a, has a plan for this this evening. And I know that the enemy would love to keep you ignorant and I know that the enemy would love to keep you um, unconfident in your master and in your king and in your Lord. Do you understand what you say when you say that he is your Lord? Maybe you're living here tonight as if he is not your Lord. But when you say he is your Lord and he is your king, you understand the authority in which you operate in. He is your Lord, he is your king, he's also your father and you've been adopted into his family you are his child. We are co-heirs with Christ, which means we have authority in his name too. So let's look at this text, and I pray that the Holy Spirit gives us insight and illumination and, and light into what it means to be a child of his. And that you, that you leave here with much more clarity about the authority of Jesus, the insight to the heart of God, but also what this text actually teaches us about Satan. So let's look at this together. It says, then one was brought to him. And I, and I think it's important that, that we stop here right now because these people were diligent to bring this man to Jesus. This man was incapable of bringing himself he, to Jesus. He was completely under control of Satan. He couldn't see where he was going, so he couldn't navigate him, himself to Jesus because he was blind. Even if he was in, in the presence of Jesus, he couldn't articulate his need because he was mute. 
He was wholly dependent upon intervention to get him to Jesus. But there were people who brought him to Jesus. And and that is our mission. You need to understand that too. Once you stop living a Christian experience where you are not living a life on mission to bring others to Jesus, you are living outside of the will of God. God wants to use you. And sometimes we do think, in fact, that we need to physically bring people to Jesus, and we do. We need to be diligent about going and making disciples and and proclaiming truth and teaching the gospel, inviting people to church, absolutely. But we need to be more diligent about bringing people to Jesus in prayer, in intercessory prayer, and being diligent to, to bring people to the throne of grace in our time of prayer. In fact, I encourage you before you ever invite someone to church or you ever seek to evangelize someone that you begin praying for the condition of that person's soul before you ever preach truth to that person. So one was brought to him, and I'm thankful for that. These people were diligent to bring this man to Jesus. But notice his condition. He was demon-possessed. He was under the control of of Satan. Uh, Not like some spiritual battle, not like we find ourselves in spiritual warfare at times, but in reality, he was completely controlled by Satan. Satan inhabited his body. His body was the temple of demons. And because of that, he was blind and he was mute. He couldn't see, he couldn't speak. And notice just, I, I love this, this so matter-of-factly how Matthew puts this, the Holy Spirit through Matthew puts this before us. He healed them. There wasn't some like big exorcism. There wasn't some uh, big incantation. There wasn't anything. There was none of that. In the presence of Jesus, the demon left. Immediately, Jesus' authority over Satan, over his demons, over the kingdom of darkness, absolutely established in the presence of this multitude. He is the one in control. He is the one who has all authority. He healed him so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and he saw he's completely whole. So Satan was having his way with this man in complete control, couldn't see, couldn't speak, completely inhabited. We don't know what Jesus did. Maybe Jesus didn't even say a word. Maybe just in his presence. Maybe Jesus just, just thought it and the enemy gone. But completely whole. He is still able. Jesus still triumphs over all the principalities and powers of darkness in this world. And he is gone. But notice these reactions. Jesus' authority is on full display right now. They're they're seeing a living, walking, talking miracle right in front of them. If you've ever seen a demon-possessed person be uh, a demon cast out of someone, it's it's a crazy experience, but the, the drastic change is amazing to me. The peace that is upon that person's life. The peace that is upon this man's life. The authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus, so fully on display right now, causes two reactions. And when the authority of Jesus is on display in front of you, the condition of your heart will depict your reaction. 
your motive and your search for Jesus will depict your reaction. Notice the multitudes in verse 23. It says, And the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Immediately they ascribed to him a messianic title. That this is the Christ, this is the chosen one, this is the one who has come to redeem Israel from her oppressors. This is the son of David. But notice what the Pharisees say. The Pharisees' motives were so impure. It's important to note too why why the, the motives of the Pharisees were impure. They wanted to defame Jesus because they were threatened by Jesus. Because they didn't want to lose control over the people. They had control over the minds of the people. They had control over the religious system. They were working connect, uh, closely with the government during that time. They had absolute control over these people. And Jesus comes to set the captives free. And they were losing their control. So what do they do? They defame the character of Jesus. Doesn't the enemy begin to do that in your life when he loses control over you? The Lord gives you a promise and he delivers you and he speaks truth to you and you experience his power and the power of his word at work in your life. And that may be even happening in this room right now. The Lord speaking directly to your heart and the Lord opening your eyes and showing you that what you've been going through is actually demonic opposition to your life of faith. Seeking to oppress you, seeking to come against you, seeking to discourage you, seeking to cause fear in your life, seeking to uh, cause confusion into your life. That is always the ploy of the enemy. This text teaches us so much about the character of Satan. So what does he do? He defames the person of Jesus. The motives of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the mission of Jesus in your life. And we are so foolish because we play that game with him. We are content to play that game with him. And the enemy can plant one simple thought in our minds from the moment we wake up and we play that game all day with him. And he's just stringing us along. Because God has a plan for your life. Yes, that's true, but so does Satan. He's got a plan for your life. To which plan are you playing into daily? The confidence that we should leave this study with is that Jesus is actually at work on our behalf. And you'll notice that as we go through this text. He is the one who keeps you. He is the one that goes to it. The battle is not yours. The battle belongs to the Lord. But you need to submit yourself. You need to do warfare. You need to get engaged in the battle and begin to trust him to go, at work, to, go to work for you, to begin to deliver you, to begin to, to move in power in and through your life. Now when the Pharisees heard it, again, verse 24, the enemy immediately at work, seeking to bring confusion. Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. This Beelzebub was a Philistine deity for Satan. So what they're saying is that, that, that the, the power that, that Jesus is operating in is actually the power of Satan. 
So they are saying that Jesus is actually under the authority of Satan. I love the Lord's response because he doesn't shy away from this. Verse 25 says, but Jesus knew their thoughts. He knows our thoughts and he seeks to correct their wrong thinking about him, not for their sake only, but for the multitude's sake. And we have this, this, this teaching about his authority, about Satan's tactics, about Satan's if I could say it this way, Satan's end game, but Jesus' ability to completely annihilate his power and to completely disarm him. He says this. He says, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? He appeals to the simplicity of their logic. Like, listen to what you're saying. I came in and I cast out this demon. Now this man is whole. He's standing whole before you. You've seen my authority over Satan. And you're saying that I am filled with Satan and that by Satan's power I'm casting out Satan. That doesn't even make sense. Why would Satan come against himself? Now, this tells us a few things. Number one, this tells us a lot about Satan. That he has a goal. That he has a kingdom. And that he is not divided. Satan has a mission. And his kingdom is not divided. You understand that? Satan and his minions and his demons, they're all walking and marching to the beat of the same drum. They all have one goal, and they are focused. And his kingdom is not divided. Understand that. We get so divided. The enemy goes to such a great length to, to produce duplicity in us. That's, that's why covetousness, the Bible says, which is idolatry, is such a powerful ploy of Satan. Why? Because what does it do? It divides our heart from the Lord. We walk with such a duplicity. You know what I mean by duplicity? We're divided internally. We, we kind of walk with God, but we also have worldly desires. And I'll say, I'll, I'll tell, I just want to remind you of this, that the wells of this world will never quench the weary heart. But the enemy puts the wells of this world. What do I mean by that? He, he puts the things, the pursuits of this world, the, the, the high-mindedness of this world, or the, 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 the motives of this world and the ways of this world before us. And we, when, when we allow our minds to track down those paths only to come back to find that we are more empty than when we began. Nothing satisfies us in this world. No relationship outside of Christ no pursuit outside of Christ, nothing will satisfy us. So the enemy goes to such a great length to produce this division within us. Have you ever heard this old adage, military term, divide and conquer? Because once our hearts are divided from God, he, he can find a, a, a chink in the armor to exploit, a weak point to exploit, and he goes to town on that weak point. 
He doesn't attack us where we're strong. He attacks us where we're weak. But he's not divided. And that tells us something. We have an enemy. Why would you go, why, why would you enter into a battle and not want to know about your enemy? First, you need to acknowledge that you are in a battle. Second, you need to know as much as you can about your enemy. Notice he's focused. And he hates you. And he wants to destroy your life. And he doesn't, the Bible says that he disguises himself as an angel of light. Sometimes we think that the enemy is going to be super apparent, but he's not. He's deceiving. He's, de- he's deceptive. He's a liar. He's a father of lies. He's, he, when he speaks, the Bible says there's no truth in him. He's the accuser of the brethren. He whispers lies day in and day out so he could get you your mind uh, so confused so that your heart becomes so divided from God. And then he entices you to sin and then you sin and then he condemns you for sinning in the area in which he tempts you. And then you follow this line of, of condemnation so your heart gets further and further and further away from God and he, and he divides you from the heart of God. Why? Because he's undivided. And he will not rest until you are destroyed. Now we've said a lot about Satan. I think there's more to be said. I know there's more to be said about the Lord because what is his nature? He leaves the 99 to get the one. And you, when you're on that track, have you ever noticed, for those of you who give given your life to Christ, that you can never backslide without and, and be happy? You'll always be miserable? And you say, well, I'm miserable in Christ too. Well, I'd be, rather be miserable in Christ than miserable outside of the will of God. Because at least I know I'm pursuing him, and at least I know I'm pleasing him, and I know that he is able to redeem and deliver in every situation. And if I just walk with him and surrender to truth and not my feelings and not the lies of the enemy, I know that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He is our good shepherd. So you can't be in the middle. The Lord is, the Lord is focused on you. We've talked about just how as much as the enemy is focused on you, the Bible says that you are the apple of his eye, that, that not one sparrow falls to the ground without him taking notice, but how much more value are you than many sparrows? He says he, he numbers all of your, of, all of your wanderings, and he, and he holds your tears in his bottle, and, and he knows the number of hairs that are on your head, that his thoughts towards you cannot be recounted in order. That he is so consumed with you as if you are the only person that he has ever created and he created you to be the object in which his love is bestowed upon. But we have such a false and twisted perception of what love actually is. And you say, if he loved me, I wouldn't be going through this. No, I say, he loves you so you're going through what you're going through. You say, well, that doesn't make sense. Of course it doesn't make sense to the natural mind. But it does to the spiritual mind. He's so concerned with the the production of your faith and your character because he knows the world in which he's called you to conduct your life in. And he knows that it's only your faith that is going to overcome this world. So what does he do? He goes to work, molding and shaping you, growing you in your faith because by that, you overcome the world. So he withdraws the feeling of his presence to cause you to to grow in faith. To make you seek him in prayer so that prayer can be answered and you grow 
and a confidence of his ability. So just as focused and undivided as the enemy is, the Lord is overwhelmingly more focused and undivided. And he promises this. Psalm 138. That he will perfect the things that concern you. You say, I can't see it. I don't feel it. I don't believe I have the power to do it. Well, that's, that's okay because he does. The Bible tells us in Philippians 1.6 to be very confident of this. That he who has begun a good work in you, he will complete it. That he will keep you from the evil ones. 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. So when you feel like you can't keep yourself... He is keeping you. As focused as the enemy is on your destruction, the, en- the, the, excuse me, the Lord is just as m- much more focused on prospering you. And you're good. But the enemy goes at great lengths to, to discourage us in that. What's he do? He attacks his character. He's not good. He's not loving. He's not kind. So the Lord goes to great lengths to teach us some truth. Look at verse 26. He says, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? He has a kingdom. Note that. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be judges. In that day, there were Jewish exorcists, and he's not acknowledging their ability to exorcise demons. He's just saying, you guys believe they're casting out demons, and I clearly did this work in front of you. How are you attributing my work to Satan? Look at verse 28. I believe it's it's powerful. He says, but I, if I cast out demons, underline this, by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. There's a few things that I want to note about this verse and kind of tear apart, put it back together before we move on. He says, but if I cast out demons, underline this, by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of God. Notice how Jesus Being the second person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are co-equal, they are co-eternal. They work in perfect harmony with one another. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, notice Jesus honored the Spirit of God and worked by His energy. Jesus has ultimate authority, but He chooses to operate by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit. Which tells us what? When you give your life to Christ, who indwells you? Holy Spirit. If you've been baptized by the power of the Holy Spirit, what is not the Lord telling you and I the same Spirit by which he exercised this demon and had authority over this demon is also alive and is at work in your life as well? The answer is yes. But are you confident of his authority? Are you confident that greater is he who is in you is greater than he is who is in this world? You are filled with the spirit of God in which Jesus, the same spirit, 
in which Jesus cast out this demon and every demon. Notice the humility of Jesus. It's amazing to me. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Verse 29, or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? This strong man in this text is Satan. How can can one enter a place where Satan has dominion and plunder his goods? Notice this, unless unless he first binds the strong man. Jesus comes in and he binds Satan. And first he binds a strong man and then he will plunder his house. He doesn't just bind the strong man, he plunders his house. He does what he wants. He puts it back in order. He disarms the power of Satan. So it's important that you and I walk in this proper understanding that Jesus has ultimate authority, that he is not equal with Satan, that Satan is not equal with him, and Jesus has the ability to bind the strong man, but will you allow him? Or if you're just content to play the enemy's game, you can play the enemy's game. Or you can acknowledge that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. I'll say this. The depression that you're going through, the, the enemy is not depression. You're not praying against depression. The enemy is Satan. The tactic is depression. You're not asking the Lord to deliver you from, from fear for the sake of being delivered from fear. You're asking him to give you victory over Satan. Satan is the enemy. The tactic is fear. You don't want to have victory over confusion for the sake of having victory over confusion. Again, Satan is the enemy. The tactic is confusion. Do you know your enemy and his tactics? You and I, if you're seasoned in your walk with the Lord, we should be able, I had to do this Multiple times this week. I put my heart before you this week. My own thought life before you this week. What you're feeling, Wade, is not real. It is not reality. Oh, it's very real in the sense you're feeling it and experiencing it. But it's not truth. The truth is, is that Satan is attacking you right now. Your mind is the target of his attack. So let's go to war. Let's start praying. And let's continue to pray and continue to pray and continue to pray. And what do I know? That God is at work in my life personally. He's, he's moving pieces in my life. I know I'm getting ready to, like, uh, come on, we're, we're not ignorant as well. If we're seeking to walk closer to the heart of God and he's working in our life and, and I know I'm about to teach something about Satan and disarm and bring light to his reality, of course he's going to attack. So let's walk in the reality of that too. And let's just begin to pray and trust the Lord to deliver. What I had to tell myself in my prayer life is like this feeling, your reality will not be forever. It will flee. It will be gone. Let's do it. But that's called the Christian walk. That's called living in the promised land where there's giants And what do the giants present an opportunity for you to experience his power over them?
But are you, are you, are you employing spiritual, dis, deploying spiritual disciplines and asking God to go to work on your behalf to bind the strong man, to plunder his goods so that you can stand in victory and realize we won again? Well, we won again. That's what I'm saying. You cannot lose. It may be a prolonged battle, but you won't lose. I, I was sharing this verse with the leadership this evening, and it, and it struck me in such a powerful way as King David is looking at the end of his life, and he's looking back on all the battles that, that he went through, and the, the, the victories, the defeats, the internal battles, the despondency, the depression, the anxieties, the, the very real battles between very real enemies and Goliath and the Philistines and Saul. And he says at the end of his life, before he's about to die, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress. That's an amazing testimony from a man of God who was not perfect by any means. But at the end of his life, he could say, the Lord delivered me from every single distress. Why are we so content to go on undelivered? Because the Lord is willing, if we are, the Lord wants to go to work on our behalf. He wants us to be confident that he is the stronger man and that he has authority, the ability to just bind the strong man, go into his house, and plunder his goods. I think it's, it's helpful to look at Luke 11 if you want to turn there with me. Because Luke's account offers a little more insight. Luke 11 and verse 14 says this, And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges." But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him, this is the point that Jesus is making. Jesus is stronger. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Jesus, if you leave here with one thought tonight, if the Holy Spirit can just deposit and illuminate one, one, one thought into your heart tonight, it's that Jesus, whatever it is, Jesus is stronger. And you say, well, it seems like Jesus is delaying. I will say it is his love that's delaying. It's his love that is causing the delay. Remember Mary and Martha in John chapter 11? He said, behold, he who you love is sick. 
And it says that Jesus waited. Lazarus was sick, and Jesus waits. Why did he delay? He whom you love is sick, and he waits. As you read on through John chapter 11, it goes on to explain that how Lazarus would die. It dies. So John eleven fifty two, 52, I believe it is, or 56, it says, shortest verse, Jesus wept. Jesus didn't weep because he knew what he was going to do and raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus wept because of the, the consequences of the fall and the reality of sin and the brokenness of Mary and Martha's heart and the grief of their heart. He wept because of that. He knew what he was going to do. And what does Mary and Martha say to him? If you would have been here, my brother would not be dead. If you would have just came when we called. But the Lord responds that this was not this is not the final answer. This is not going to be his finality. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. He says, do you believe that? And then he goes on to, to call Lazarus forth. His death was for the glory of God. His delay was so that Mary and Martha and you and I and the people of God for decades and centuries later could grow in the knowledge of who Jesus was. That's why he delays in your life. You say, well, if he would just meet me now, then that'd be great. I could move on. But it's his love that keeps you where you're at. Why? Because love is not satisfied until it is loved in return. For you to love him... He knows that you need to know him. And he, teach, he takes you into the deepest depths that are so specific to you so that he could reveal to you something about his nature. Not so that the enemy can have the final say, but so that you can grow in a knowledge of who he is and love him in return. Mary, you think about her act of worship in John chapter 12. Her, her brother who was dead is alive. They're at their house. And she comes and she brings the alabaster flask, which, which was everything that she owned. It was a family heirloom. It was worth a year's wages. It was very expensive. And she breaks it. And in an act of worship, she, she, she pours it on him. But why? Why? Because she loved him. But why did she love him? Because of the display of his power and his nature in her own life. You can't help but to worship. Even though she was brought to the deepest sense of of grief, she experienced his power in the midst of it. 
She experienced his person and his character in the midst of it, and it led to this life of devotion and love and worship. I brought you to Colossians in in chapter 1 and verses 15 and 16 because it's impactful to me, and it should be to you, that it says that all principalities were created through him and by him and for him. So when the enemy is at work in your life, he's really serving the purposes of God. Because when you bring God into your battle, into your warfare, he turns the attack of the enemy on his head and he reveals his character to you. And the attack of the enemy served as a tool to grow in the knowledge of who Jesus is. That's spiritual warfare at work for your good and God's glory. First John tells us that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. So what if you're in a season of, where you're, of tor- being tormented by fear, what is your greatest need? It's not deliverance of fear. It's a greater revelation of the love of God, of the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what's on display before us. The strong man is bound. He plunders his goods. And he closes this section by saying, He who is not with me is against me. He draws a line in the sand. You can't be neutral. You can't kind of be with Jesus and kind of be with Satan. Or you say, well, maybe I'm not really with Satan. Maybe I'm just doing my own thing. Let me tell you this, you're not doing your own thing, you're doing Satan's thing. There is no neutral ground. There are two kingdoms. You are caught in the middle of both if you're playing the game. And you are the enemy's puppet. But that's not what God desires for you. So if you can understand this, that that the chief characteristic of God is love, not that God is loving, God is actually love. And if you could be honest with him enough to say, we talk about this almost every week, honest with him. It's interesting to me, just this thought that, that we are so, so impatient with God and he is so patient with us. Like, like imagine if you were in a marriage, in a relationship, and you were just in and out of love with your spouse. Would you expect your spouse to stay? But we're so in and out of love with God, and yet he's patient, and he's long-suffering. And he's kind, and he's gentle, and he's ready with open arms when you want to come back. And he, like if my wife ever came to me and was like, I I don't think you love me. I'm insecure in our marriage. I'm confused about, will you really be there for me? Are you really going to do everything you need to do for me and the girls? I don't really think, even though I've overabundantly proved that on multiple occasions, that would be, that'd be insulting, but we do it to the Lord every single day, sometimes all day long, and yet he's there. We impose these false thoughts on him, and he's there. He lets us go our way and play our stupid games, and yet he's there. He will never leave. He will never forsake. But make no mistake about it. 
If you're not with him, you're against him. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. What this text has done for us tonight, it's, it's illuminated a lot to us. I mean, at least it has to me. Primarily, the victory that we should be walking in. If you are unclear about who your God is, then you need to spend time in his word. If you are unclear about who Jesus is, then you need to grow in the knowledge of who he is. If you are unclear about his authority over Satan, you need to ask him to make it super clear and you need to stop playing games and you need to draw. There are times in our relationship with God where we have to say, Lord, I'm not moving from this point until you reveal yourself to me. We can go days, we can go months, we can go years, Lord. I'm not going to get weary, not going to be weary. It's like Jacob wrestling. I will not let you go until you bless me. Or as, as Rachel would say to Jacob, give me children or I will die. When we become that desperate for God, we will begin to see his working in our life. We need to have a correct perspective of him and not just his authority, but the authority that is given to you in him because you are his child and you are his temple and you are filled with the spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for truth here tonight, Lord. Thank you that in a moment that your word and your nature and your character can just overshadow the enemy. Lord, forgive us for our lack of confidence in you. We pray, Father, that you would fill our hearts with hope and the assurance of your love and of your grace and of your mercy. Lord, we say those things, but we mean those things. Lord, we need to know what it means to experience your mercy. Lord, give us hope in you tonight. Lord, help us to see you through the confusion of this world and the lies of the enemy and the thoughts of our own hearts, Lord. Lord, we commit ourselves to you this evening, Lord, and thank you for your patience and your grace and your kindness with us, Lord. We pray that you would glorify yourself in an amazing way and through our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen.